Well, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and as you do that, um, I have, I don't know if this qualifies as a dad joke, but it's certainly a well-worn joke. Um, So there was a doctor who smiled over his spectacles, and he said to his patient, what can I do for you today? It's my memory, the patient replied. I just can't remember things like I used to. Can anybody relate? (laughs) The doctor said, how long has the problem been going on? And the patient looked puzzled, and he said, what problem? (laughs) What problem? He forgot already. If it went like that, if you, if you forgot the punchline. <laughs> um, well, tonight, tonight uh, as we look at uh, verses 5 through 13 in chapter 2, uh, I've titled them this uh, study, Forget Me Surely. Have you, ever heard, have you ever heard the saying, forget me not? Or the, maybe you've heard of the flower, forget me not. Well, um, we're going to be looking at Paul as he uh, talks about how to deal with with an offender, with a sinner in the church, because up to this point, he's been kind of defending his ministry, and so we've talked about what do we do when someone brings, a, when someone brings accusation against us or false witness against us, and we've talked about um, church strife, and now Paul, Paul's ready to move forward. He's defended his ministry, and he's ready to move forward, and so how do we, how do we move forward? And he's going to talk about uh, the only appropriate action, having talked through the offense, um, that someone in the church had caused him, the only appropriate action now would be to forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. But we live in a world where that's not culturally acceptable, right? Have you ever, have you ever heard um, or seen uh, memes posted about how we forgive people but we don't forget because we're going to learn from the behavior, Right? Um, which there is something good to, there, sometimes it is good to learn from experiences, but um, it would seem that God's forgiveness, and this, why, this is important because when we talk about imaging Christ, uh, Paul often uses the language of forgive as Christ forgave you. Uh, Paul, the, when we think about the term, what would Jesus do, it's not so much about thinking, what would he do in this exact moment, in this exact instance? But it's, what did he do? What did he do already? And how do I apply the life he lived and what he did do to this moment, right? Um, and so then the way that God forgives us, he forgives us as far as the east is for the, from the west. He blots out our transgressions as if, so that he has no memory of them any longer. He continu- he, think about this, okay? Because this is why forgive and forget is culturally unacceptable. It's because we don't want to get duped twice. <laughs> it's because we, wouldn't, we, we can't stand the thought of letting somebody tread on us, so to speak. Um, but think about what Jesus did on the cross. How long had Israel been rejecting him and treading on him? And uh, how long had God continued to reach out to an obstinate people, to a stubborn people who had no heart for him? And so... Though it doesn't make sense, I, I feel the pain of, I don't want to, I don't want to, and I'm not suggesting to not use wisdom, and yet Paul, we're going to see Paul very liberally apply the notion of forgive and forget. And so the title of the message is, Forget Me Surely. Forget Me Not, not means to no degree. So if you say forget me not, it means don't forget any of it. 
But if you say, forget me surely, it means surely is to emphasize um, the verb, which in this case is forget. So, surely, for, surely forget the offense. That's what I, so, forget me surely. That's the title of the message this evening. Scott uh, Hafeman commenting on our, um, let's see, our struggle to hear the words of Jesus and obey them and apply them in our lives. Like, have you read, have any of you read through the Sermon on the Mount recently? Anybody read? When you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you read, love your enemies, and when you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you read, um, uh, or when you read through Jesus' teaching and you read about how we are to react to the poor and how we're to react when someone wrongs us, like giving them, walking the extra mile and not just giving them our our cloak, but our tunic too. And when you read those things, and then you think about how do we apply the, the life of Jesus to our life today, what do we often do? We often say, well, you should do this, but... Like, we put a lot of clarifications and buts on it, right? Um, there's a, there's a, a, theologian, a theology professor named Sky Jathani who has written a little, little devotional called, What If Jesus Was Serious?, and it's a, it's a daily devotional on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and then that was received really well, so he's written one about prayer, and then he's written one about the church. Uh, but, this, but the Sermon on the Mount, he, he writes in his intro about our tendency to dismiss the teachings of Jesus as though they are impractical. And so Scott Hafeman, he, he's commenting on that in a similar way. He says, within Western society at large, to act on religious principles is simply irrational. It's irrational. Like, have you, have you ever encountered a teaching of Jesus and thought, well, that sounds nice, but this world is such a mess, and that's just so irrational, Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. I will get taken advantage of. People will, will walk on me like a doormat. I've heard that phraseology in the church quite frequently, right? Um, Scott, Stephen Carter uh, has written a book about... Uh, disbelief in the American church. And he says, he says, in contemporary American culture, faith is treated more and more as just a passing belief, almost as a fad, rather than as fundamentals upon which the devout build their lives. And then he continues, he says, and through all the trivializing rhetoric runs the subtle, unmistakable message, pray if you like, worship if you must, but whatever you do, do not on any account take your faith seriously. And that, he said, what his, his case in the book is that that attitude is not just a worldly attitude, it's one that's crept into the church, that we, we have a posture more of dismissal toward the Scripture than of radical obedience, that we, we struggle, we str- when we run into something that is difficult to apply to our lives, that maybe the church, and you really have to read the book because I don't have time to give you all the examples he gives, but man, did it resonate. We often are almost as guilty as our culture at, at dismissing the radical upside-down way of Jesus and his kingdom. So, so how do we deal? So, so what we're going to look at here in chapter 2 is how do we deal with sin against us personally or in the midst of our church? And so in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul begins, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. So, just to start, this was a personal injury between Paul and the offender. 
Um, I've been reading quite a lot about this. I, I have always been curious if the offender might have been the, the young man in 1 Corinthians 5 who is sleeping with his father's wife, his mother-in-law or whatever, if this is the same guy. But the more I read, the more it seems that this has to do with a particular individual who was especially upset with Paul for not making the second promised visit and decided that he wasn't worthy of leadership and authority in the church and began to seek it for himself is kind of the dynamic that seems to be going on. And so it's, and he's, he tears down Paul. In order to build himself up, he apparently has assaulted all of Paul's character and all of Paul's leadership and all of Paul, all, everything that the Spirit ha, in him is doing, he has tried to tear down to, in order to build himself up. Um, so this is very much a personal injury between Paul and the offender. But what Paul is saying here is even though as much as someone has grieved me, they've also grieved you to the, the congregation to some extent. And so just before we move on, let's, it would do us well, I think, to, to pause and, and recognize sin often does that. In fact, I don't know that sin is ever just my business. You know, when it's my, I don't know that my sin is ever just my business. In some way, shape, or form, even if I manage to keep it hidden, even if I manage to keep it private, my sin and your sin is it, it affects more than just you. It touches more than just you. Um, it has, there are subtle effects. Like, for example, um, pornography may lurk beneath the surface, and it may only, you may manage to keep it secret, and it, it might never ever get out that you're looking at things that you should not, but it affects the way that you look at your spouse. And it affects the kinds of things that you fantasize and wish for in your spouse, and it might even affect your drive toward your... Do you understand what I'm saying? So, like, it can be... Uh, sin is always touching more than just you. It's always affecting more than just you. And so, sin is not just about you, and I think that's important in a culture where we like to think that it, it's really my business, and when the church has no business invading and stepping on my toes, and the church has no business holding me accountable. One of my favorite Proverbs, or maybe one of the most impactful, uh, Proverbs 13, 20, walk with the wise and you will become wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. So, uh, I, used, I, I used to talk about this a lot with teenagers when I was a youth pastor, uh, and illustrate it this way. It, it says, what that proverb says is, if you hang out with people who make good decisions, who, ha who have a, a helpful disposition and attitude and character, what the proverb promises is that you will begin to take on those characteristics as well, and it will be good for you. It will create wisdom in your life. But the, phrase, but the phrase about foolishness is different. It doesn't say the companion of fools will become a fool. It says the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, why is that? And I used to, the way I used to talk to teenagers is I said, hey, we all know that when, when you get in a group of friends, you act different than you do by yourself, and especially boys. And I had a lot in this youth group where this, this uh, analogy really made a lot of sense to me. I had a lot of teenage boys. When I moved there, I had this core group of 20 seventh grade boys that, de that de developed really quick, and that was kind of the center of the group. So you can imagine just the chaos and buffoonery that was sometimes a, a Wednesday night youth group. It was just, man, and how I, how I navigated that as a 20-something-year-old is a testament to the Spirit and the way that He equips us for things that are bigger than us, okay? Um, so, I remember just thinking, okay, when these boys get together 
and someone's acting foolish, you don't see everyone in the group adapt their behavior. So, for example, someone, someone realizes that they can, get a, they can get a rise and a laugh out of people by harming themselves, you know, doing stupid things where they end up getting hurt. That, that happens in groups of teenage boys, you know, they just, they, and, and they take bigger and bigger risks and bigger and bigger falls, but when it gets a reaction, that's, that's sometimes people crave attention enough that, that, mat, that, that they'll continue to do that. And so I, explained to, I would explain to teenagers, when you see somebody running through a wall, like when you watch America's Funniest Home Videos, you don't, you, you don't uh, immediately think, oh, I want to go do that. But you do want to be around that person because it's hilarious, right? You do want to, you do want, there's something about being around a person who does stupid things that draw, that kind of sucks you in, and you kind of want to be around that foolishness because you don't want to miss the hilarity that ensues. Maybe you're passing, yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, I used to, I used to tell, well, that's another story. Anyway, um, anyway, but eventually, eventually, what Proverbs 13:20 says is eventually foolishness explodes, and it no longer just affects the fool. Not, you don't become a fool because you can see how painful it is to run into the wall. You can see how painful it is to try and do that backflip and land flat on your back. Like, it's hilarious to watch somebody else do it, but you're not about to take that risk with your own body, right? But, uh, but what happens when uh, the buffoonery of someone else results in a citation of the law or um, a lawsuit or an injury or, or worse, you, you know, what happens. And so it's kind of what I'd explain to him um, is it's kind of like a, like a dirty bomb. Okay? You know, a, a dirty bomb is a bomb that's filled with shrapnel. And so like a fool, uh, a fool is like a dirty bomb. When it goes off, you, it doesn't even matter if you were right next to it. If you're in the vicinity, the shrapnel gets you. And so um, sin is like that. Your personal sin is like that. You may think it's just your business and it's just your decision. I, may, I, I might be deceived by the enemy to think that that, that is just my business. But, it, but sin is a dirty bomb. And when it goes off, it hurts more than just you. And that's what Paul is saying is here in the church, we've had sin and it was primarily against me, but it's really affected the whole church. Sin disrupts relationships and divides churches. And so uh, what we're going to see in verse 6 is that the church deals with this, and Paul commends that. He says, Paul says, you have recognized that sin has affected your fellowship, and you have dealt with the sin. Uh, and I want to I pause there and just talk about that for a minute. I have realized um, that I grew up in a culture uh, in my generation that really emphasized necessarily to some degree the need for more love from the church towards sinners. But what that created in my generation, I think, is an anxiousness over causing sorrow such that we backed almost completely off of accountability and discipline when it comes to sin for ourselves and for other people. We got so, we got so um, burdened with the lack of love and some of the legalism that we grew up with that we swung all the way to the other side and we remove discipline and accountability completely from our own lives and from the corporate life of, of, of the church. And so uh, Paul, is not, Paul is not suggesting, he'll not suggest in this text that discipline wasn't necessary. There is an importance when we realize the gravity of sin, how it tears us down 
and how it can tear the church down and tear other people down, we take it seriously and we deal with it. We discipline our own bodies and we discipline our brothers and sisters in, in the communities of faith that we live in. Sometimes the opposite mistake is made, certainly. Sometimes we are too harsh. But there has to, what Paul shows us in this passage is the right sequence and balance needs to be, be maintained. That sin must be dealt with first. It's the bigger threat than the sorrow. Sin dealt with first, and if sorrow comes, then deal with the sorrow. That's what he, 1 Corinthians is all about uh, a painful visit that he's about, about to make. And he makes the painful visit, and he deals with the sin first, and then the sorrow comes, and he promises, I'm going to come back, but then this guy starts doing, causing trouble, and so he sends a letter instead to deal with the sorrow. Don't, so don't underestimate the need for love and grace, but at the same time, we must first deal with the sin. Um, N.T. Wright, he puts it this way. He says, if the community of faith is simply concerned to have a placid life and tones down the clear and definite notes of gospel belief and behavior for the sake of, uh, of easing sorrow, its effectiveness, its witness, and mission to the world will be greatly reduced. Satan will be delighted. Equally, if a community becomes so keen on discipline and order that it deals harshly with offenders and allows them no chance to repent, to make amends, and to be welcomed back as full members, Satan will be just as pleased. Somehow the church must steer the course between the two, or it will simply go around in circles, or worse. Verse 6, so he, he says, The punishment that you inflicted, so you dealt with the sin. We dealt with the sin together. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So the majority of the church came around and um, held this man to account that was stirring up trouble. So that, and he says, okay, the discipline was sufficient. You've stood against sin. Um, you've done the right thing. And before we move on, I want to just talk a little bit about what church discipline looks like. What does it look like when someone sins against you? When someone, um, uh, someone uh, sins against you in a way that it seriously hampers your ability to minister together. When someone sins against you in a way that it causes ripple effects in the church fellowship and church community. Now, one thing I want to say is that mature believers recognize what those offenses are. Not every offense needs to be dealt with between two people. Sometimes it just needs to be dealt with in our own heart. In fact, Proverbs says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So sometimes things, sometimes things are trivial, and we need to have the maturity to say, you know what, maybe I don't need to be that offended about it. Maybe I don't need to put so much stock in their, in their opinion on that matter, because it's not really for them to say, and I am accountable to some others, and I just need to let that go and give them grace. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they speak of. They know not what they do. They know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if we are going to apply the way of Jesus to our lives, sometimes forgiveness and reconciliation is simply overlooking the offense and moving on. We could use a lot more of that uh, in the church. <laughs> uh, not just this church, in, in all churches. But if the offense is a big enough deal, if, if you, in discernment with the Holy Spirit, determine this is a, how do we deal with that? Well, Jesus uh, lays it out for his followers in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So, first of all, Jesus says, when there is an offense, it starts between just you and them. Nobody else. It's, it's not between you and your pastor. It's not between you and your best friend. It's not between you and anybody else. It's between you and them to go and deal with it. And, if, and when you do, if they hear you and they apologize and they humble themselves and they repent, what he says is you've gained, you've, you've gained your brother. You've won them over. Um, the Greek means uh, it's, it's like a business term of gaining treasure that was lost. Like maybe the stock dipped a little bit and you maneuvered in your portfolio, and you managed to regain treasures. That's kind of the imagery that's being painted here. When you win your brother over, it's like gaining treasure back in business. So when a brother or sister in Christ falls in sin, it's treasure lost. It's treasure lost because they're miss, we're missing their fellowship. We're missing right fellowship in the body, and we're missing their gifts, and we're missing their ministry because of the strife between us and them. Like if it's a personal offense, you can no longer receive their ministry anymore. You can no longer enjoy their gifts. In fact, you will begin to make wrong assumptions about them, and you'll begin to sin in your own heart if you don't go and reconcile, which is why Jesus also teaches if you're at the altar uh, offering your gift to God and you remember that there, is, that there is sin between you and somebody else, you need to leave that gift and go take care of it because you can't rightly worship if you're not in right relationship with other people. So uh, it's as if Jesus is saying people are very, very valuable, very, very, very valuable. And that's why the good shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. And how does he go after the one? Well, here in this text and often throughout the scriptures, he uses you to go out, go out after the one. He uses you to go after the one. What he's saying here is that when there is one among you who is separated from the fellowship, you need to be the good shepherd. You need to follow my lead. And you need to go out and you need to seek that person to restore them to the fold. He uses you when it comes to someone lost in sin, going privately, hand extended, offering forgiveness to invite them back into the fold. And when you go, Galatians 6.1 says, one of the cautions that Paul gives about this is be careful that you don't fall in this whole process. Be careful that you don't fall, meaning watch your own heart. Not, it's, it's not necessarily a worry that you're going to fall into the same sin they did, but rather it's a worry that in restoring them, you'll fall into a harshness and a judgment and, um, and, and a um, self-righteousness, a superiority that elevates you over and above your brother. And so now you've both fallen in the, in the process. Instead of reconciliation, we have two hurting people hurting one another and now hurting the whole church, right? So when we, re- when we go to our brother, I want to caution you, as Paul cautions, reconciliation requires obedience and faithfulness to the Scriptures and to the Spirit. It requires that you don't just go in the emotion of feeling better, that you don't just go in the um, indignation of the wrong that has been brought against you, but it, it requires that you humble yourself before God and say, God, I want this hurt in my heart to be healed so that I can let go of it and forget it. I want, this hurt in, in, I want this hurt between me and this person to be healed so that I can look upon them with the love and value that you place on them yourself. It requires then saying, Holy Spirit, 
I'm going to need your wisdom to do that because there are emotions and there are pains and there are indignations and there are rights that my flesh feels that it has justly that will not reflect your character and will not bring about the reconciliation that you desire. In fact, James 1 says that human anger does not bring the righteousness that God desires. So we must check those things at the door and ask God to lead us through the Scriptures and by His Spirit to seek true reconciliation. And so you go, you, not anyone else. And so if you go to them and you, and, and you speak to them in the Spirit and in the Scriptures with humility and with the goal of total reconciliation, to forgive and to forget, and it does not go well, then Jesus says the next thing you do is you take one or two other people. You, you go to one or two people who you know can hold both of you in high esteem. You, you need to exercise discernment here and say, okay, God, that didn't go the way that I hoped. And you need to say, who would you, ha- who, who would, who would you have me bring in to this? Who would, who would be the kind of person that could be trusted with this to seek the good of the church and to seek the good of them and the good of me? In fact, I would go as far as to say that the, the attitude of Christ Jesus is reflected in Philippians 2 when we put others' interests above our own. So bringing another party into the matter might mean bringing somebody in who is more connected to them than they are to you. You need to do that maybe, again, with discernment, but that, but that you would be careful to check your own heart that you're not trying to win, but you're, you're trying to restore all parties and bring about true forgiveness, okay? So, that, so then you take one or two people. The, the issue at stake is Jesus is teaching us that there's something about positive peer pressure and the verification of truth. You bring somebody else into the discussion, and you, now you have two or three people seeking the discernment of the Spirit for His truth. And then finally, if it doesn't go well from there, He says, go to the church. Now, I would ask and instruct that going to the church, if it hasn't at this point included uh, a pastor or, uh, or leader, it should include a leader before you don't stand up on Sunday morning and out somebody's dirty laundry at your dirty laundry without bringing, uh, bringing those that God has called to shepherd the whole congregation because now we are, uh, we are lighting that dirty bomb without the discernment of, of the one that God has said, I'm placing you uh, responsible over, over these people to care for them and watch over them. And if you don't feel that you have a pastor then you can trust to do that, then you have a whole other issue that we need to talk about as far as maybe, maybe the wrong guys here and you need to come and speak to me. If you can't trust your pastor, then you need to come to me and, and deal with what's in your heart. <laughs> uh, or if there's something that, do you, does that make sense? Like, um, so anyway, you go to the church. At that point, especially, that is particularly to our context would mean to involve, um, to involve the shepherd of the flock, um, to involve uh, leadership, and then they will help discern uh, how much of the church really needs to be a part of that process. Um, and then he says, but, if, but sometimes, boy, uh, heaven forbid, but if you get to that point and there's still no progress on reconciliation, then verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Break the spiritual fellowship. Now that seems weird. What is, what is the point of that? If Paul uses the language in other parts of the scripture. He says, hand them over to Satan. What Paul, when Paul says that, when he says hand them over to Satan or hand them over to the uh, to the to the devil's pleasure, 
what, there's a spiritual reality that's being named there, and that is there is blessing in the fellowship of believers. He's saying, he's saying remove the cloud covering. Remove the pillar of fire from their life that, that keeps them both day and night in all of the wildernesses and the places. Take them out of the fellowship. See, there's blessing and protection to being a part of God's people. And so if a person is absolutely unwilling to be in full harmony and reconciliation with all of God's people after all of that effort, then the, the last step is to hand them over to Satan, to remove them from the fellowship of the believers and allow them to be subjected to the wilderness without God's covering. Okay? Um, if, you're, if, if you're not totally sure about what that covering looks like in uh, Deuteronomy, we read that there is a rabble of non-Jews that travel with the Israelites. And everywhere, everywhere, the, everywhere God's present go, presence goes, if the rabble remains with them, God's blessing remains with them. And what we see is that when there is a divide in the Israelite camp between um, where there are disobedient Israelites and there are faithful Israelites, there are instances where we see the rabble choosing to go with the faithful Israelites because they understand even better sometimes than God's own people that where God's presence is, is where the blessing is, okay? Um, Or let me give you another example. One of my favorite hidden stories in all of the Old Testament is uh, this guy named Obed-Edom, so Obed-Edom, if you're familiar with the Philistines stealing the Ark of the Covenant, uh, they steal the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in the Temple of Dagon, and then they, they wake up to find that Dagon's fallen down uh, before him, and then they stand him back up, which is such a funny image, right? Of like, this is my God who I worship, and I have to help him stand. Um, but, but they stand him back up, and then they come in the next day, and he's fallen down, and he's broken into pieces, and they're all freaked out. And so they, they send the ark onto Ekron, and when it gets to Ekron, there's this plague of tumors that comes on the town, and all this sickness and disease comes on the town, and they're like, okay, get it out of here. Well, it ends up at a Philistine's house named Obed-Edom, and I don't, it doesn't tell us um, what was different about his response, but what it does tell us is that blessing came on the house of Obed-Edom. Blessing came on, and he was very blessed until the day that David came to get the Ark of the Covenant and return it to Israel. And here's what's crazy, is what you'll see if you, if you pay attention, just watch, when you, next time you read through the Old Testament, just watch for the name Obed-Edom. And what you'll start to see is there are these little random places where Obed-Edom, just like Rahab and just like um, just like the different characters of the Old Testament who find themselves kind of grafted into God's story, where he starts showing up as a temple servant. And it even goes so far as to when you get to Ezra slash Nehemiah, and they are rebuilding Israel, you find that there is one of like a seventh generation grandson of Obed-Edom, who is right in the heart of the helpers rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls of Israel. So the blessing of God goes with those who seek his presence. See, when David takes the Ark of the Covenant out of his house, he actually moves, from, he moves out of Philistia to Israel. He, goes to, he moves his whole family, abandons his people, and moves to Israel to follow the presence of God and, and, and then goes and volunteers at the temple as a musician and ends up getting selected by God, which that's a whole other story I don't have time to tell you, but gets selected by God to be the guard over the gate that goes to, the, to God's treasury, which is, anyway, it's just crazy. Oh, God's presence, uh, there's a blessing in being in the fellowship of God's people. And so that's why Jesus says, okay, if, if, they, don't, if they won't keep the sanctity of the fellowship of God's people, then cast them out 
where Satan gets to work his mess, and they're no longer covered by God's blessing and protection and sustenance. Um, and maybe they'll learn their lesson, and they'll, they'll, want to, they'll want to reconcile with the body of Christ. And then he says to us in verse 18, he says, your willingness to deal with sin and to have the hard conversations in order to make peace in the body of Christ influences what things are bound up in the, battle, in the spiritual battle for the kingdom of God to be established. He says, whatever you bind on earth. So if you bind up sin on earth, you are, you are serving the purpose of the spiritual battle of heaven as God's kingdom is being set up. That, but you actually, in the Garden of Eden, were created as co-creators with dominion the same as God. That's, we are image bearers. We bore his image, and he gave us his authority to go and multiply and to steward the creation. And that's what he's working back towards. And he says, so for us, dealing with conflict is a matter of binding sin in the kingdom of God and loosing truth and loosing peace. And he says, so if you bind sin on earth, it's bound in heaven. It's a cause that God is fighting with you. And if you loose peace and truth and, and, all, and, and reconciliation, that's a battle that God is fighting with you, and he'll loose it over the whole congregation. You have to, you have to be willing to take sin seriously enough to want to, to want to bind it up wherever you see it in your midst with gentleness and respect and love for, the, for the, your brothers and sisters, but nonetheless, not letting sin slip through the cracks, Okay? That's what Jesus is teaching us. And then it is appropriate to apply these other two verses in other ways. But the context that it is written in, he says, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. In other words, if two of you who are at conflict agree that the conflict is over and that forgiveness is extended and that the lies and the deceptions of the enemy have no more authority in your relationship or in the church or in anybody else who's affected by your circle... It's affirmed by heaven, and it's done. Okay, just, just as your forgiveness is affirmed by Jesus, you agree with him, I'm a sinner, forgive me, and he says, Father, I forgave him, he didn't know what he was doing, his right, my righteousness is his righteousness, Those, that's agreed upon, and it is set in heaven. That's what's being said here by Jesus. Ooh, I'm getting excited, that's good, good news. And then it says, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. In other words, dealing with sin, dealing with conflict, bringing about reconciliation amongst the people of God is a matter that Jesus takes so seriously that when we come together in that way, he's right there. Sure, as you, as you make disciples, according to the Great Commission, he promised he'd be with you to the end of the age. Likewise, in your disciple-making, when conflicts occur and when there's brokenness in the body and the reconciliation needs to occur, he promises I will be with you in those conversations. How many of you have ever had to have a hard conversation and you're terrified because you're like, I don't know if it's going to go well. I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing. I don't know how they're going to react and receive it. And then you went and had that conversation and you're like, I can't believe how well it went. You, know, you bathed it in prayer. You sought the scriptures. You, you thought through everything you were going to say with love and humility in your heart. And then you, do you know why? Because Jesus was right there with you agreeing together that, the, that reconciliation is more important than your petty differences, or even your not-so-petty differences, your big differences. So that's what Jesus teaches us about church discipline. That's why, that's why I've been insisting that everyone take the membership class, because, as I said in the First Corinthians series, 
I'm trying to get us all on the same page about what we believe and what we're about so that we can take sin more seriously and we can, we can, take, we can take, um, take misgivings about the mission and about our calling and misrepresentations of who we are and who God is and who Jesus is more seriously, not so that we can be more judgmental and harsher with one another, but so that we're all on the same page. If I, if, 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 if I feel uh, or if somebody else sees something that is out of step with who Christ is, we have a context to sit down and say, remember how we talked in, in membership class? And remember how pastor preached? And remember how we've discussed in Bible study that this is who Jesus is and this is who God has called us as Nazarenes at Cookville Nazarene Church to be? We're all on the same page that we want to take sin seriously and we want to take the unity of the body seriously for the building up of the kingdom. That's, that's the big picture. So I, just, I, I want some context for those conversations. I'm, I'm thinking if I'm going to approach people in love, then we all need to be on the same page. I need to have taken the time to explain all these things uh, so that I'm not just nuking them with, church, with the idea of church discipline, but I'm, I'm saying, here, we've, we've discussed these things. This, this, is, this is the big idea is Jesus has taught us this is how we are to live as a body of believers, and so now that's how we're going to live. <laughs> Imagine that. So, how should the Corinthian church, then verse 7 through 13 deals with, how should the Corinthian church now behave toward the offender who has been disciplined for behavior disrupting and dividing the church? If they're repentant and humble, what do we, what's the steps after that? Verse 7, now instead, this is Paul speaking, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If there's repentance, then restore them to the fellowship. Restore them to the blessing of God's presence. Because otherwise, we may lose the battle for reconciliation altogether. Because Ephesians 4 teaches us that if anger remains, and the sun sets, and the sun rises, and we continue to remain angry, what happens is a foothold of bitterness forms in the hearts of those who have been put out of the fellowship. And the devil builds on that foothold a stronghold. And now instead of repentance and humility and restoration in the congregation, we have further injury. And so we must forgive. In fact, if you read on in Ephesians 4, he gives these instructions and then he summarizes all of it in verse 29 to 32. He says, so don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And, listen to this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When there is discord in the fellowship, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God because he's the one who's bringing us all under one faith and one baptism and one Lord. He's the one who is working all these things together so that we would be one body building one another up. That's Ephesians 4, it's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, and that's the kind of the thrust of it. So he says, then, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another. Listen to this. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay? So that's what he's saying. He's saying, forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. He's, been, he's humble, he's repentant, he's received the discipline. Don't leave him out there in the wilderness any longer. Pull him back into the fellowship. Hug him like, like nothing ever happened. Let, let it be as far as the east is from the west. Blot out his transgressions. Forgive him as Christ forgave you. And so verse 8, he says, I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. That's what I've just described to you. Reaffirming your love. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. 
So he, write, so he wrote them the tearful letter to see, will you stand firm in discipline, rejecting the sin? But then will you also extend forgiveness when repentance is offered? So uh, this, is, this is a really important thing uh, that, uh, that really has been a driving factor, again, behind the membership class and all of that. Forgiveness is a test of our obedience to the gospel. Forgiveness is a test of our obedience to the gospel. That's what Paul says here in verse 9. We should reject sin, but we must reconcile with our neighbors. We, when, when they are repentant and when, when, when they want to reconcile, we don't hold anything back. If, if it was important for us to bring the conflict, it needs to be important for us to also offer the forgiveness, right? And in fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, in just a few chapters, he's going to say that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. If you want to know what the ministry of the gospel is, one of the ways that we can describe it is it's a ministry of reconciliation, of bringing harmony back, of restoring the creation to what it was meant to be. Verse 10, um, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive in the first place, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. I think it's really crazy that Paul is now standing up for this person when the congregation didn't do that for him. Okay, so during the painful visit, he came and he made, and he made his corrections and then there were people who accused him of what kind of leader he was and he left feeling very hurt because uh, he had to say some hard things and then people said mean things back to him and he left very hurt. They didn't stand up for him and then he had to write the tearful letter because they had listened to this guy who went around saying Paul's, not, Paul's nothing, Paul's, Paul's actually kind of a, a, a bad leader and, and so he writes this tearful letter because they have not stood up for him but now he's standing up for the very man who spoke against him and he's saying, listen, if you forgive him, I forgive him. In fact, and this is what I, what I really love, I, Paul sets the example of reconciliation. When he forgives, he also forgets. Did you see? I love this. It's very cheeky, if I could be British for a minute. You know, that the, the, all of the pomp and circumstance in England, it's, it's uh, rubbing off on me for a minute. So, um, if there was anything to forgive, he says. If there was anything to I'll, I'll forgive him too. If there was anything to forgive in the first place, and Paul, what do you mean? This guy was slandering your name all across Corinth. He was saying you were a bad speaker. He was saying that you say one thing and you do another, that you're kind of a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator. But he said, it's forgotten. What, did, what was it? It's like the guy who saw the doctor with the memory problem at the beginning. What was it again that I came in here for? I don't even remember. I've forgotten. I've forgiven and I've forgotten. That's a high standard, right? But there's, a, there's, there's something about the way forgiveness works. It's a two-way street. When you release the offender of all guilt and you forget it completely, it releases you from being crippled by their actions. So as I was thinking about our culture, uh, the way that we want to dismiss forgive and forget, because I don't want to let somebody, I don't want to forget the lesson that I learned. But some, don't, have you ever heard the idea that the older we get, the more jaded we get, or the more cynical we get? Forgive and forget is an opportunity to be free of the scars of sin. Forgive and forget is an opportunity to, to, to not be crippled by the wrongs that other people perpetrated to, against us. And sure, does it leave us vulnerable to being hurt again? Yes. But is the Spirit equally able to help you through that again to forgiveness and healing once again? Also, yes. 
And so this is an invitation and an example of reconciliation that Paul is saying, the ministry of reconciliation should be so prime to us that we put all of our, just as we put all of our trust in Jesus' forgiveness to us over and over and over again, since, you've, since you have accepted Jesus' forgiveness, have you um, maybe given Jesus a few reasons to maybe want to learn some lessons about your character and, and, and forgive, but maybe not forget? Like, I mean, if you apply your standard to Jesus, if I apply my standard to Jesus, isn't Jesus kind of a fool by our standard? That's kind of, I, some people don't like the song Reckless Love, but that's kind of how I hear the song Reckless Love, is that if I apply my standard of love and forgiveness to Jesus, he is reckless, right? Do you, would anybody want to push back on that? I mean, if I love, if I, if one of you abused my love, kindness, leadership, generosity over and over and over again, at some point one of you would pull me aside and say, they've kind of shown you who you are, pastor, who they are. So maybe you should stop helping them. Maybe you should stop running in circles. You're being reckless. You're being foolish. You're not, you're not reading the situation. When I think about my journey with Jesus, I think, man, he could have said that about me hundreds of times, right? By, the grace of, by, the, by his grace and mercy and by the power of his spirit, I think I'm sinning less but I'm not sinless, right? And so maybe, in, maybe we would be more free to love as Jesus loved, and maybe the forgiveness of Jesus, there'd be more forgiveness as Christ forgave us in the church if we could just continually release the offender of all guilt and forget the scars and the lessons that we learned, right? I think that's what Paul is exampling for us. In verse 11, he says, it's actually a pretty big spiritual deal. He says, I am doing this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes, of his schema, his targeted plans to undermine God's work in our community of faith. It feels like what Paul is saying is if we do not forgive, victory in the church hangs in the balance. Unforgiveness is a scheme of the devil. Unforgiveness is a scheme of the devil. Living in intentional sin is reprehensible, but a lack of forgiveness is the true cancer that will destroy the church. Because at the point that it gets to whether or not we will completely forgive, all that can be done to heal and, re- and, and repent and uh, move on from the sin has been done. But if we refuse to offer the forgiveness to finish the process, that's where the cancer grows and truly harms the church. See, Satan is an accuser. Job 1 and 2 gives us a picture of this, a really vivid picture of this. What is he doing? He's going to, he says, he's reporting to the divine council. What have you been up to, Satan? Well, I've been going to and fro in the earth. I've been watching over all of your servants to see who, are tr- who can truly be approved righteous. I've been stirring up trouble and offering temptation, and they've been falling left and right, God. And God says, ah, oh, but... Not all of them. In fact, how about my servant Job? He's righteous. And so we see Satan, what Satan is, is he's a legalist. He knows there's no hope in the law, and so he's walking to and fro in the earth to see who's living according to the law because the law just testifies against us ultimately, right? 
but God, but God says, I'll take up for my servant Job. He spends every day in my presence. In fact, he even comes into my presence and pays, prays on behalf of his kids. And so he bears witness to Job's righteousness. And then, knowing the trouble that the Satan is going to bring to him, bears the responsibility of leading him in righteousness through the Spirit, journeying with him through the pain of life. That's what Job is all about. That's Job, Job is about, what's, about what Satan does in the world and how God responds to it. God testifies to righteousness and then walks with us as if we will continue to throw ourselves at his feet. And that's ultimately what Job's righteousness is, is his faith in God's goodness no matter what. His faith in believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he promised. It was credited to Abraham righteousness that he believed that God is who he says he is and would do what he's promised, right? And that's what is credited to Job. God in his foreknowledge bears witness to Job's righteousness, believing, looking in his heart, believing that he, is, that he is clinging to faith in God's goodness no matter what. Even though he's, he may be rich, but all of his kids are out of step with God. That's why he sacrifices for them and prays for them. It, we often look at Job's richness and we fail to see that his life, not all is perfect in Job's life, even before Satan comes. His kids are deviants. He has to pray and sacrifice on their behalf, right? But God bears witness to the fact that he puts all of his faith in God's goodness and God's faithfulness, even when he can't see it in every area of his life. And likewise, Christ gives us the benefit of his righteousness. We'll read about the ministry of reconciliation. He who knew who no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He gives us his righteousness. He testifies to the righteousness that he's imparted to us. He testifies to our faith and credits it to us as his righteousness. And then he empowers us to walk that way. And part of how we walk that way is we offer forgiveness to the offender as he has offered it to us. We offer the righteousness of Christ to the offenders in our lives as he has given it to us. And that's why Paul here, he says, I am doing this for the sake of the whole church. I'm calling Christ as my witness that I forgive this man in the same way that he's forgiven me. And that is what's gonna bring healing to the church. The power of forgiveness is the only hope for the destruction of sin. The power of forgiveness, and that's why Jesus' resurrection is so, forgive, so significant. He forgave us on the cross, but if he stays in the tomb, who bears witness to God that he forgave us? He's dead. There is no life in him. But when he comes out of the tomb, he now ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he bears witness before God. I have imparted my righteousness to them because they have stood in faith by the power of the Spirit on me alone on my work alone. Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. He says, sin is a disruption of created harmony, okay, a willful transgression against the known will of God, right? Um, and, but he, he says something else I think that's really profound. Sin is a disruption of created harmony and the resistance to the divine restoration of harmony. In other words, unforgiveness or an unwillingness to believe that God could forgive me, right? Do you see what he's saying? It's not, just, it, it's not just a disruption of created harmony, but if we won't receive forgiveness for it to be restored. See, sin has broken the world, but God has made a way to restore it. God's made a way for new creation to come about. The creation is broken, but he's, he's restoring it. So sin is also a resistance to that res restoration. Above all, sin disrupts and resists human relation to God. That's what Cornelius Plantinga said. So profound. Forgiveness is crucial. So, in fact, it's so crucial. This is how we'll close in verses 12 and 13. 
He says, now I went, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So let me tell you what's going on here. Paul says that forgiveness is so crucial. This divine restoration to the church of Corinth is so crucial that even though I went to Troas and I found for myself there that the Spirit was at work and there was fruitful ministry for me there, I couldn't stop thinking about Corinth. See, Titus was the messenger that he sent with the tearful letter, and he was waiting to hear back from Titus about whether or not they received it and about whether or not they, whether, whether or not they were ready to move forward in forgiveness and start reconciling the whole church and getting back to the things that he had taught and established when he planted the church of Jesus Christ there. So he's, he's, he's so consumed with, will the work of God be restored by the forgiveness of Jesus that he can't even focus on a new work? He says, I, I, I preached as long as I could there. I did some fruitful work there, but I had to find Titus. I had to make sure that Satan was not going to undermine the forgiveness that God had already brought with unforgiveness and unreconciliation, with uh, a disobedience to rejecting sin and confronting sin so that reconciliation could come. I was just tortured with it. Fascinating, right? Some of us might be tempted to judge Paul. Like, why wouldn't you have stayed? Well, I think that says something about how important forgiveness and unity in the church is. And so um, I just want to close uh, with some words from Ephesians 4 and then just pray that God would, uh, would lead us to take sin seriously but to also live faithfully the ministry of reconciliation even when it's uncomfortable. So, Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. How do we do that? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. Oh, I could preach just on those two words. That's what, that's what uh, membership class is all about right now. Make every effort. Families, even though there are 100 other families here in Cookville, you don't just run to the next family when it gets uncomfortable or when there's disagreements in the church. First, you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Sometimes keeping the unity means spending time with other families. But first, make every effort to be joined together because there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He says, uh, he says that each one, some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and they've all been given to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, the faithful witness uh, of the cloud that's gone before us. Uh, men and women who have already walked um, the, the way of Calvary, 
and they've heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And now we look to their stories, and some stories are warnings to us, and other stories are examples to us. And tonight we've looked, I think, at some examples in Paul's life and in Jesus' teaching. God, help us not to dismiss the teaching of Jesus as impractical today. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and your words are eternal. And your Spirit is giving us all the wisdom that we need to discern the truth in everything that you have said and taught. Lord, help us um, to not deviate to the right or to the left, as your people have so often been wont to do. We read in Joshua and Samuel that we deviate from your ways. Lord, help us not to dismiss or water down your ways, but instead, where we find that things are out of step with our lives, we don't seek a new God, but instead we seek a new heart. So God, I just ask for a new heart this evening about the way that I perceive offenses and the way that I forgive and, and reconcile with my brothers and sisters. And uh, I ask, Lord, that you'd help me to set an example, not because I'm anything special, but because you've put me in this place and I want to image and model your, uh, model your ways. And God, help us to hold each other to account, to take sin seriously, um, but to take reconciliation as the ultimate goal. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.